invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and also we're going to get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you want to find that now, then you'll be ready later. We'll start in Acts chapter 2. You know, it's Father's Day today, and we celebrate fathers. We celebrate the good things. Maybe some of you expressed appreciation to your father today, or had someone express appreciation to you. Um, And it's good to do that. It's good to express gratitude and to celebrate the good things. Um, But maybe what didn't get said today, but what may have been felt, is the conflicts that have been there also. Uh, the tensions, the pain, the struggles um, that you have with your father or with your children. And tonight we're going to look at what can we do when those pains and struggles and tensions are there. And um, not only between a father and his children, but between a husband and a wife and within the church. Um, No one gave me any inside information for this church, so if there's a tension going on, I'm not aware of it. Um, But God's Word speaks into those situations. And the first thing is to learn that it's nothing new. Um, It doesn't surprise God, and we don't need to shy away from it. So let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then um, in the verses that follow, there's a a verse or two that uh, that, kind of defines each one of those phrases. And we're going to look at the third phrase. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And the verses that kind of speak into that are verses 46 and 47. Um, So picking it up at verse 46... Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. They devoted themselves. So the first thing we need to do is ask, who's the they there at the beginning of verse 42? And if we had time, we could go back and look at chapter 2 in its entirety. But it's, it's the early church. It's the people that heard Peter's message on Pentecost Sunday. About 3,000 people heard him preaching about Jesus. They put their faith in Jesus. They believed. They were baptized. They formed the original church. And, you know, of all the ways that God could have described the church to us, and and what is the church, I find it fascinating that verse 42 is really the description that he gives. And he doesn't, like, break down a bunch of do's and don'ts. Uh, He doesn't give us, you know, analytics of the word church and what it means. He just simply gives us kind of a picture, a snapshot, if you will. And what he shows us is four things that they were devoted to. They devoted themselves. And that word devoted means they had committed themselves. The decision had been made in their hearts. We're 100% committed to this. 
And so the next day comes. They didn't have to decide if they were committed or not. They were already committed. And so it was a decision that continued to be worked out day after day in their lives. Um, And they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to learning the truth of God's word. They were devoted to the fellowship, um, to being together, and to being part of the church, this group of people that were now together through their faith in Jesus. They were devoted to prayer. And there's power in praying together. Uh, The Greek there in verse 42 literally says they were devoted to the prayers. Um, So it's more than just simply praying alone in your home. But they were devoted to gathering together in prayer. And and Jesus himself had, had recognized Um, In Mark 11, verse 24, for example, whatever you pray for, and that you is plural. It's not just you as an individual. It's whatever all of you pray for, believe that you all have received it, and my Father will give it to all of you. There's power in praying together. But what happens when the fellowship is broken? What happens when... Rift, division, tension, struggle, conflict comes and we're not together in our prayers anymore. Whether it's as a church family or whether it's between a father and his children. That's where the breaking of bread enters the equation. This is kind of a new lesson that I learned a few weeks ago and so I want to share it with you tonight. The richness of this simple phrase, they were devoted to the breaking of bread and how much that impacts us. Um, John chapter 17, just a few hours before Jesus died on the cross, he was praying for us, for the people who would believe in him through the testimony of his disciples. And Jesus prayed um, that we would be one. So that the world would know the Father sent him. He prayed in uh, John 17, verse 23, May they, that's us, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you, Father, sent me, Jesus, and have loved them, has loved us, even as God loved Christ. How is the world going to know this? It's as we are united together, loving Christ one another. But again, what happens when division comes? We don't seem to have to dig too far back in our history. We don't have to read too many headlines to recognize that division seems to be constant in our churches today, even in our denomination. But the breaking of bread in Acts 2 is God's solution For that which divides us. The breaking of bread is God's healing balm. For the times when the fellowship gets broken. Now I know you've been trained really well in this church. You sit really quietly while the pastor talks. If your kids are making too much noise. Shh. Right. But tonight I'm going to ask you a few times for input. So I hope you can break out of that old mold. And uh, be willing to give some input to me. And there's actually biblical basis for that. And we're going to get to it. One of the verses we're going to look at 
you'll understand why I'm asking you to do this. Um, the first question I have for you is when you hear that phrase, the breaking of bread, what do you think of? What comes to your mind? All right, communion. That was pretty unanimous. Does anything else come to the mind of any one of you? Potlucks, all right? See, there we go. We're, we're... This phrase, the breaking of bread, is it just talking about communion or is it talking about more than that? Is it just talking about potlucks or is it even talking about meals we have together in our homes? Something to think about. As I dug into this phrase, even Bible commentators couldn't agree. Though they all agreed, at least in part, it points to communion. Standing there, the pastor always picks up the cup, and then he picks up the bread. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Right? That's what he declares. And we'll come to that with greater understanding, and that's why we want to turn to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10 helps us to understand in greater depth what Acts 2 is talking about. The Corinthian church kind of has a bad reputation. It was a church with lots of conflict. There was people in the church suing one another. They were fighting against one another. Sending reports to Paul, the pastor, you know, they were trying to get people on their own side. There was those, those private meetings that happen in the parking lot. You know, you have your meeting in church, but then maybe you don't have that here. Um, anyways, you know, people were, they were fighting with one another. And Paul is trying to address that in this letter. That's one of the things he's trying to address. And he, he ties that to the idolatry in Israel's history. And he says, that was written as a warning to you. So pay attention. And in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 10, um, Paul says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful so you don't fall. And then he gets to the verses I really want to look at tonight. Verse 13. No temptation has seized you Accept what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. All right, so often I have read this verse, and I'm guessing many of you have, and you've personalized it. And you read it in terms of personal temptation. But remember, this was written to a church, to a group of Christians. And one of the temptations that's there, one of the issues that churches face is conflict. It's tension, it's division. And notice what he says at the beginning of verse 13. No temptation has seized you. All right, this isn't just a passing temptation. This isn't something that just kind of flutters by. You look at it. Maybe there's some appeal. Maybe not. No, he's saying this has grabbed a hold of you. 
None of these divisions that you're dealing with, none of this conflict that you're dealing with, none of this infighting that has grabbed a hold of you, that's holding, clinging to you, that doesn't want to let go, and you feel like, oh, I'm so sick of this, I wish it would just go away, and it just feels like it's all wrapped around me, and it influences every conversation I have. That's what it means to have a temptation seize you. Notice what he says. It's, it's common. All right? It's not unique to you. Maybe you come in here tonight as a father and your heart mourns. Your heart breaks because of the tension you have with one of your own children. Maybe you come in here tonight and your heart mourns because of the, the lack of relationship that you never got to have with your own father. And maybe he's even passed away and you know you'll never get to have. And, and it hurts. And you feel like you're the only one. Because we all come in here and we all smile. And when you ask any of us how we're doing, we all say we're fine. And you feel like I'm the only one. But Paul says, no, you're not. No struggle, no temptation, no conflict has grabbed a hold of you that's not common other people as well but God is faithful when you're tempted when that division comes when that conflict comes it says God is faithful and he's going to provide a way out a way of escape he's going to provide a way through the tension a way through the conflict he's going to provide an exit sign what will it be Verse 14, therefore, dear friends, flee from, stop right there, all right? No temptation has seized you except what is common to people. So, dear friends, flee from what? what? I know it says idolatry, but if you hadn't looked ahead, I would have guessed it said flee from the temptation, right? Flee from the sin, that's what I would have expected that verse to say. You're facing temptation. It has grabbed on you. So what you need to do is run away from that sin. But that's not what Paul says. He says flee from idolatry. Flee from putting your hope and your trust in anything other than God the Father. That conflict you're facing in your home, that tension you have with your children, that division you may be facing as a church, as you face that, flee from idolatry. Flee from putting your hope in dealing with that in any human ideology or plan. Don't put your hope in the wisdom of people. Put your hope in. And none other than God the Father. That's what he says. I speak to you, verse 15, I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. All right, here's my biblical basis for your input into the sermon tonight. I speak to you, you're wise people, you're sensible people, I'm not the only one. You can give input tonight as well. So that's, that's why I feel comfortable asking you for your thoughts and ideas. Verse 16. 
Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? What does that phrase say to you? What does that mean to you? Salvation through, sorry, I cut you off, I'm sorry. Salvation through Christ, excellent. Someone else. All right, we have a part to play, good. Any other thought on that? What does the cup of salvation, the cup of Christ mean to you personally? Or let me ask this, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Just that phrase, your life, what's the application? Being one with Christ, excellent. Yeah, yeah, the cup of Christ, the blood of Christ That's where the cup brings us. The cup of communion connects us, reminds us of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ, of course, is talking about our forgiveness. It's talking about our salvation. If we're thinking about the blood of Jesus, we're thinking about our own salvation. That's what the cup of Christ does. It connects us with his blood, our forgiveness, our salvation. The next phrase in that verse, middle of verse 16, and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? What does that tell you? What does that mean to you? Okay? It feels a little redundant. Maybe it's the same thing. Anyone else? Okay. The lamb that was slain makes us the lamb that was saved. So there's a connection there between the lamb who was slain and the lamb today, all right? The power of sin being broken, say a little more about that. What do you mean? Yeah. We're no longer controlled by our sin nature, but Christ has set us free and now lives in us. Excellent. The body of Christ. What is that? 
See, that's where it gets a little fuzzy, right? Because just a moment ago, we were talking about the body of Christ broken for you. The, the bread representing, you don't have a cross here, sorry. Uh, his body that was on the cross, right? But now all of a sudden, the body of Christ, well, that's us today. The, the lamb today, so to speak. So is this the bread, sorry, I lost my place. The bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. Is it a participation in, in this body or is it a participation in this body? Both. You see, just as the cup connects us to the blood of Jesus and reminds us of our own forgiveness and our own salvation, the breaking of the bread connects us to the body of Christ, not only his body that was nailed to the cross, but his body that's here today. Every time we celebrate communion, we are affirming, we are celebrating, we are confirming. We're saying we're committed to this, we're devoted to this, not only that we're united with Christ, but that we are united with one another. And the thing that unites us is greater in power than the thing that causes conflict and division among us. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. That's what it means to be devoted to the breaking of bread. That recognition that we are participants. We are communion in the body of Christ. Not just his flesh that was on the cross, but with each other because we are today the body of Christ. Verse 17. This is just kind of a summary statement because there's one loaf and we who are many are one body for we all participate or we all partake of the one loaf. That loaf that we share when we have communion, reminds us that we are all literally the one bread of God. The one bread of Jesus. Same church, second, or still Corinthians, Paul's second letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, we know verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, she's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The next verse says, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he committed to us the message of reconciliation. Okay, we live in a broken world. World. We live in a world filled with division and hatred and prejudice and looking down on one another for any sort of reason. Our greeting from God tonight said, you lack no spiritual 
gift. You have been given everything you need in Christ. And now he says, and he has given us the message and the ministry of reconciliation. We are the body of Christ. And we need to be devoted to the breaking of bread to remind ourselves that what we have in common, that is all things Jesus, is greater than anything that could try to divide us in this world. That's the heavy part of the message. Back in Acts 2, there's a little more uh, light side to the message as well. A little more fun side to the message, I guess. Maybe fun's not the right word, but, you know, breaking of bread makes us think of communion, reconciliation. It also made us think of potlucks, all right? So now we're to the potluck portion of this passage Uh, Verses 46 and 47, every day they met together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. All right, now we're talking about breaking bread together in our homes. Notice the mood of the people. There was glad and sincere hearts. Hearts. They were doing it together in the temple, in the church building. They were doing it together in their homes. What blessing flows when you share a meal with someone? Whether it's a potluck or whether in your home or at a restaurant. What, what, is the, what blessing is there when you share a meal with someone? Say it again. Friendship, all right? Someone else. Communion of the saints, fellowship, nourishment for the soul, for the emotions, for the body, relationships. In her book, um, Karen Wilk, she wrote a book called Don't Invite Them to Church, Moving from a Come and See to a Go and Be Church, she wrote, When we sit down and eat together, when we invite people to share a meal with us, we communicate several things. You are welcome here. We trust you and consider you one of us. You belong. You're accepted. Sharing a meal says in a nonverbal way, we are family. Eating together pushes the pause button. When we gather around a meal, we slow down enough to talk about more than the weather. It's an opportunity to really listen and really be heard, to relax and be present with one another. You know, the Bible presents a picture of the coming of Jesus and our resurrection as a wedding feast, a time of sharing a meal and fellowshipping together. And we can begin to experience that in our own homes today. The greatest tool that you have for building relationships with your children, for building relationships with your neighbors, is your own kitchen table, your picnic table on the back deck or whatever it is. It's not complicated. You don't have to try to impress one another. Um, 
If you don't typically pray or read the Bible after a meal, don't try to do it the first time you have company, right? I mean, just be yourself. Listen, ask questions. Notice what else can happen when we do that. How does verse 47 in Acts 2 end? What happened? People were being saved, right? Every day, people were being saved. Granted, there was 3,000 in the church, but... The greatest tool you have for sharing the gospel is also your kitchen table. We live in a world where everyone has a screen and everyone's in a hurry and everyone's lonely. Everyone's feeling anxious and no one feels heard. To invite people that never have a listening ear. I mean, people pay hundreds to go to counselors and all counselors do is listen. You can do that at your own kitchen table. And as people share, you don't have to preach a sermon to them. It can just be a simple question. The first people I led to Jesus, I didn't really lead them to Jesus, but I was part of their conversion story. I had uh, two neighbors, George and Florence, live next door to my parents' house. Um, they were probably 80. I was five Florence sat at her kitchen table. The TV was always on. She went from one cigarette to another, and I was over there. I spent a lot of time over there because they had free 7-Up, and my parents never gave me pot, but whatever, you know. So it was mealtime. They were going to eat, and I said, well, aren't you going to pray? And they said, um, no, how do you do that? So I prayed for them. After I left, they said to each other, if a 5-year-old can know how to pray, I guess we don't really have an excuse. And they went to the pastor of the church where we attended and told him they wanted to learn more about Jesus. It's not complicated. It's just a matter of opening your life, opening your home to people. See, honestly, those of us that come from good families, stable families, we have a bad, ha a bad habit. Every year... Father's Day, Mother's Day, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, Fourth of July, Memorial Day, Labor Day, and most weekends in between. Who do you spend time with? It's your own kids, your own family. As a result, your neighbors, people up the road, your coworkers that come from hurting situations, you never invite them into your home. And so we need to... Celebrate our children, celebrate our families, yes, but we also need to open our homes to people who are hurting so that they can experience the breaking of bread with us. Let's pray together. Jesus, you said in Roman, or sorry, Revelation chapter 3, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Lord, we look forward to that. We look forward to fellowshipping with you at the wedding feast of the Lamb. We celebrate your blood shed for us and your body broken for us. And Lord, tonight we just want to Offer ourselves to you, recognizing there's a hurting world all around us. 
There's hurting people that we work with, that we go to school with, on our sports teams, in our neighborhoods. And Lord, we've, we've maybe said a few words to them out there somewhere, but Lord, it's messy to invite them into our own lives and into our homes. So Lord, tonight we want to offer you our homes, our kitchens, our dining tables, So that these people can experience with us the breaking of bread. That the body of Christ broken not only for us but for them as well. Lord, here we are. Use us for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and sing with me, please.